0: So a little intro on Sharice. For those that don't know her, um, she has taught um, previous um, studies for us and has been such a wealth of just encouragement and wisdom in studying the word. And if you were here last week, her husband Jared taught. And so they are a dynamic duo in bringing us the word. Um, But a little bit about Sharice. She grew up in a Christian home and made a profession of faith at a young age. She met Jared in college and then married in grad school. So they spent the first 10 years of their married life finishing degrees. Jared graduated with his PhD on their 10th anniversary, and they will celebrate their 19th anniversary at the end of the year. They have three children, Asher, 15, Jude, 13, and Haven, 11. She says, I was never a kid person, but I was blown away by all the good gifts that God had for me in making me a mother. I love these kids more than I knew I could, and though they continue to be the predominant way God is sanctifying me. She says we've moved eight times since we were married. they moved eight times since they were married, so she considers herself somewhat of a packing and moving expert. So if you need any tips. They lived in four different Midwestern states, twice in Michigan, twice in Wisconsin, once in Illinois, and now in Minnesota, which we are so thankful for. She's just biding her time here, though, until she can retire someplace warm. They moved to Minneapolis after Jared accepted a position at BCS where he where she also teaches freshman grammar and composition. She loves traveling, cooking, and would be a foodie if she could afford it, interior design, reading, writing, Chelsea Football Club, which you can ask her about later, watching her kids play soccer, coffee dates with friends, and teaching the Bible, and not necessarily in that order. But if you have heard Trees teach, <clears throat> you know what a gift it is to our women here and just her love of the word and her faithfulness and diligence to want to understand it and rightly teach it and apply it so that we would also just revel in God's word and be changed by it. So we're thankful for you and we'll welcome you up and pray over you before you begin. Father, we thank you so much for your word and that we see through Matthew 18, just the depth of your grace and your love poured out. And we thank you for the ways that you have worked in and through Charisse and just her faithfulness and studying and preparing to be able to help us see and understand more of the depth of your grace mm-hmm. through Jesus. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our hearts and ears and eyes, that we would experience afresh these truths, and that by the power of the Spirit, you would just speak in and through Cherise, that you would give her your peace, and that you would continue just to use her words and bear much fruit for your glory. We look to you and trust you, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so you heard my husband
1: last week, Jared, and I always think he's kind of a hard act to follow, (laughs) so, but I have this in my favor. I will not be teaching for an entire hour, (laughs) so. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 18, please, and I'm just going to say, give you a trigger warning. So listener discretion is advised here. What you, we're about to study will let, most likely convict you. It might produce feelings of guilt, inadequacy, and even some shame. But those feelings will not be the final word, so stick with me. Here we are in the middle of the book of Matthew, chapter 18, where an argument breaks out among the disciples. So now, and they, turn, they quickly turn to Jesus because they want him to settle this dispute for them. Now, one of the things I love about the gospel writers is they take exactly zero pains to save face. They make no effort to conceal really just how daft they could be when it came to understanding Jesus' teachings and his mission. So because just a few verses ago in chapter 17, Jesus had just finished telling them he was going to be killed and he would rise again. And the disciples, you'd think maybe they would follow up with a line of questioning about that disturbing prophecy. But instead, they turned their attention to a different matter. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So they probably thought he'd name one of the three favored ones, Peter, James, or John. Maybe they thought he would say the smartest or the strongest, or maybe the person who had best kept all the laws since their youth. But instead, in verse 2, he calls a little child over to them. He puts them in the middle, and he says, whoever humbles himself like this child, that person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus isn't telling a parable here, not yet, but he is painting a precious picture of reality. So, I imagine the disciples were kind of perplexed by this answer, right? Humility? Childlikeness? That's what you want? More than zealous keeping of the law? More than strength and zeal? Jesus was always surprising them with his answers, and he wasn't done surprising them because Jesus then seized this opportunity to preach a sermon to them. This is the fourth out of five sermons that Matthew records in his gospel. And in this teaching, Jesus gives full-orbed instruction on sin, both our own and others' sins, He gives instruction on repentance and forgiveness within the community of God's people. This sermon is often called the Discourse on the Church. And from the beginning of the sermon, Jesus teaches that the defining characteristic of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven is humility. True citizens of heaven are humble. And they're humble because they understand some important truths about sin and repentance. So, for instance, they understand how destructive sin is. And we see that in verses 8 and 9. Jesus teaches that undealt with sin will plunge them into eternal hellfire. They also understand how to avoid sin. You see that in verses 7 through 9. And here Jesus recommends taking drastic action to even avoid temptation to sin. But true citizens of the kingdom of heaven also know what God's heart is like towards sinners. So in verses 10 through 14, Jesus compares God's heart to that of a shepherd with a hundred sheep, who if just one of those a hundred sheep goes missing, he will leave the 99 on the mountainside in pursuit of that one. But they also understand how to live in a community of sinners. So in verses 5 and 6, this includes not tempting our brothers and sisters to sin. And then in verses 10 to 15, this includes instructions for us to have that same shepherd, shepherd's heart towards sinners. So we should pursue them like God pursues us. And in this section, he includes instructions for how to deal with those who won't repent. Okay, that sermon, this discourse on the church is the context for the parable of the unforgiving servant, which we're gonna turn our attention to now. And we're gonna look at that parable in four steps. So one, we're gonna look at Peter's question, that this is what prompts the parable. Two, we'll look at Jesus' twofold answer, and that includes the parable three we'll see his brief explanation of the parable and then four we're going to apply the pre both the sermon the preaching and the parable to our lives so first the question as was so often the case the first disciple to speak up after this teaching was peter aren't you glad for peter (laughs) he's not self-conscious he asked what so many of the disciples were probably thinking, but maybe were a little too embarrassed to ask. But, and he doesn't even realize yet that his question betrays that, once again, he hasn't really understood what Jesus just taught on sin and repentance. And actually, his question reveals that he doesn't even know his own heart. There's some self-blindness there. It's the question that all of us self-righteous folk might ask. Okay, Jesus, so I know we're supposed to have a forgiving heart like our Father in Heaven does, but, like, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who sinned against me? He asked that in verse 21. And here I kind of wonder if Jesus feels like we parents often do, right? When a dispute breaks out between your children, so at our house it's who can take the first shower on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Somehow we always fight over this. You know, so you sit your children down, you give them a little discourse of your own, maybe out of Philippians 2 on considering others better than yourself. And the kids nod their head in agreement. They apologize. It's a sweet moment. They get up to go, and immediately another fight breaks out. Who gets to eat the last bowl of cereal? And you think, were you even listening? I wonder if Jesus felt that way in this moment with Peter. But Peter, zealous as always, is eager to show, oh, I've been listening. So he suggests his own answer. Should I forgive my brother seven times? You know, Jewish rabbinic teaching required forgiveness for three repeated offenses, but at the fourth, the victim was allowed to stop forgiving. So Peter probably thinks he's being generous. I mean, he has more than doubled this amount. Besides, seven is the perfect number, the number of completion, as we learn from our series in Daniel. But let's see how Jesus responds. So he has a twofold answer here, and don't look at it yet, but consider everything you know about Jesus. Do you think his answer will surprise the disciples, or will it be, will it be what they were expecting? Well, let's look at it. So his first answer in verse 22 counters Peter's suggestion. He says, not seven times Peter. But 77 times so first and foremost what Jesus is not saying here we'll just clear that up first he is not saying that we should keep a tally of how many times somebody has sinned against us and how many times we've forgiven and when we mark off that magic number 77 we can wash our hands of the matter now he's actually saying the exact opposite Jesus' verbiage in verse 22 intentionally recalls an obscure Old Testament figure, one who descended from the line of Cain, Lamech, do you remember that name? You can read his bio in Genesis 4, 23 and 24. Well, like his great-great-great-grandfather Cain, Lamech also murdered a man. And for a, much smaller, for a much smaller offense, a young man had struck him or wounded him in some way. So Lamech overreacts and viciously murders him. Well, after Cain had murdered Abel in Genesis 4.15, God exiles him, but then marks him. And he threatened sevenfold vengeance on any who would kill Cain. Well, Lamech knew this history. So when he murdered a young man for a small offense, he boasted that any who tried to kill him in vengeance wouldn't just face sevenfold vengeance, but 77fold vengeance. So in his answer to Peter, Jesus recaptures Lamech's boast of excessive vengeance to help us see that we ought to be excessively generous in our forgiveness of those who sin against us. And I would argue, even generous to a degree, that might seem disproportionate to the offense. You know, Lamech's story begs the question, why such excessive vengeance on, the, on a violent murderer? Or, or why such excessive vengeance on a person who would kill a violent murderer? And now Jesus recapturing of Lamech's words begs us to ask, why such liberal forgiveness for chronic sinners? So Jesus counters Peter's stingy answer with not seven times Peter, instead shower those who repent of their sins against you with liberal, excessive, even disproportionate forgiveness. What Jesus does next not only further answers Peter's original query by illustrating what this liberal heart of forgiveness looks like, it warns us of the dire consequences of our not forgiving in this way. And his listeners are once again surprised even shocked by what he says. And we're gonna read that together now. We're gonna read the parable of the unforgiving servant starting in Matthew 18, 23. We'll read through 34. We're gonna leave off verse 35 for now. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Okay, this parable takes place in three scenes. And one character binds all these scenes together. It's that servant. I call him servant number one here. So in scene one, a king decides to settle his accounts, and his servants begin to round up all the people who owe him money, including one servant who owes him a vast debt of 10,000 talents. Now, as far as I could tell, nobody really knows exactly how many dollars this amount translates into. But what we do know is this is a huge debt more money than you could make in several thousand lifetimes. So the ESV study Bible notes that one talent was worth about 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. If that's true, then somehow this servant had accrued a debt worth 200,000 annual incomes. So if the average Ramsey County income is $90,000, this would make this debt, $18 billion. Well, since the servant couldn't possibly pay this, the king ordered that he be sold with his family and everything he owned in order just to recover a small portion of what he had lost on the servant. So the king is simply cutting his losses here. But in verse 27, we learn something about this wealthy king. Not only is he wealthy and powerful, He is capable of great pity and compassion. So even though he has lost a fortune on this man, he listens to him when he humbles himself and falls on his knees and begs him to be patient, promising to pay him back. And the king doesn't just listen and say, okay, I'll give you more time. He responds with that excessively generous forgiveness that Jesus was just talking about, and he wipes the debt away. He forgives the entire amount, and that servant walks away completely free. I mean, can you imagine that kind of debt being erased? Your mortgage, gone. Expensive home renovations, taken care of. Car payments, no more. College tuition, don't even worry about it. It's all covered. How would you, how should you respond to that excessive generosity? Yeah, I've mentioned this in other contexts before, but we had a property fire about 12 years ago and we lost just about everything. And on top of that loss, we discovered there had been some major mix-up with our insurance policies. So for a time, we despaired of having any of our losses covered. We thought we were facing financial ruin. Um, I also happened to be pregnant with our third child, and Jared was yes still in school, <laughs> so and we had just moved, of course, so we weren't even very connected at our church. It it was a disaster, but you know, for the next month or month and a half, even every time I went to my mailbox, I would pull out a letter from a friend, from a friend of a friend, from college, you know, from college friends, from my. People in my parents' church, from my sister's in-laws, and there would be a check inside, and we were just overwhelmed with the generosity of God through His people. Well, one night, a name, a note came from a fellow seminary couple with a check for five hundred dollars, and in the note, they told us that they had also been in just. A state of financial ruin a few years ago and people had really come to their aid and paid off some significant debts of their own and they wanted to pass that on to us and they in turn asked us to pass that money along should we be in a place where we could repay it which in God's kindness we were able to do within a year's time but this is how people who have experienced the forgiveness of a great debt respond Our friends had someone pay their debt, and so with gratitude and joy, they turned and paid somebody else's debt, even at great personal cost, because I tell you, $500 is a lot when you're a seminary couple. But this is not how servant number one responds. In scene two, after having experienced the forgiveness of an immeasurable debt, the servant leaves the king unchanged. And he does the unthinkable. He goes looking. He is on the hunt for the one who owes him a much smaller debt, trivial by comparison. So servant two owes servant one 100 denarii. And if the ESV is correct, and 100 denarii is about three months' worth of wages, by my scale, that, again, that's Ramsey County's average income of 90000 that's roughly $20,000. OK, this is not insignificant but it is only a tiny fraction of the debt he had just been forgiven. It is zero zero one two five .000125% of the debt he was just forgiven. That's 125 millionths of his own debt. I did ask Alexa how to, <laughs> how to pronounce that percentage. But nevertheless, he seeks out this man. He seizes him. He begins to choke him, and he demands repayment. And the second servant speaks almost verbatim what the first servant had just spoken to the king. You can see it. Compare verse 26 with verse 30. The first servant hears his own words, his own pitiful words spoken back to him, and yet he is unfazed by the irony and unmoved by his predicament. He shows none of the pity or compassion that was just shown to him, and he throws the man in prison. Well, distressed by this cruelty, the, the watching servants immediately report these actions to the king, the, one, the only one who can do anything about this injustice. So scene three, here we have servant one and the king reunited, but this time, the servant receives judgment instead of mercy. The king renames him the wicked servant in verse 32 and says, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And then, rather than the original sentence of selling him, his family, and his belongings, the king actually throws him into debtor's prison so that the wicked servant experiences the same punishment he intended for servant number two. So we get a little poetic justice here. Like Haman was hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai, so this servant is incarcerated in the debtor's prison he intended for servant number two. All right, now to remind you, Jesus told this parable in answer to Peter's question about how many times he should forgive a brother for sinning against him. Okay, and even though Peter has eyes that are open, he has ears that are functioning, they can hear, he still needs some help applying this parable to his situation. So Jesus doesn't just let the parable stand as he usually does. This time he explains the parable in a short statement in what Hebrew scholars call the nimshal. Okay, that's in verse 35. Look at that with me. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And with that explanation, even Peter has no further questions and the implications of Jesus' teaching begin to settle on his heart, much like they're probably settling on your heart. What are we to make of this teaching? I think this parable and this whole sermon, this whole discourse on the church has four specific applications or conclusions that we need to draw today. And the first one is that humility leads to greatness. So Peter's question, just like that dispute that arose between the disciples at the beginning of the chapter, it's wrong-headed from the start. It's pride that asks, who is the greatest? It's self-righteousness that wonders, how many times do I have to forgive? So pride and self-blindness, faulty judgment, ingratitude, and mercilessness hide behind these types of questions. But Jesus masterfully exposes all these sins of the hearts by teaching that only by humbling ourselves can we become truly great. He first makes this point when he brought that child into their midst, right? And he said, humble yourselves like this child and be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But he makes it again in the parable of the wicked servant. So when Jesus first started telling this parable, I bet Peter kind of was identifying with the king, right? The king is the one who has been offended. He's the one who's in the place to forgive, and that's what Peter wants to know, how much should I forgive? But as Jesus continues the story, he invites Peter to compare himself not with the king, but with the wicked servant. That's the unflattering comparison this parable forces us all to make we must consider, consider consider whether we might be that wicked servant. Just hearing this parable humbles us. The parallels between the wicked servant and us are rather striking. So our debt to God is one we could never pay even in several thousand lifetimes. We too are desperate for God's patience and mercy. When we humble ourselves, God is moved with pity and compassion. And he exercises that extravagant forgiveness of his, and he wipes away the ledger. And like the wicked servant, we too can walk away completely free of debt. It's what we do next that reveals whether or not we are the wicked servant in this parable. If we truly recognize the excessive, disproportionate generosity that God has shown in forgiving us, we too will eagerly forgive others in that same magnanimous spirit. But if we've shut our eyes and stopped up our ears to the magnitude of what God has given us, we will be stingy and miserly in forgiving others. You know, the huge disparity between the two debts in this parable is also meant to humble us. So it humbles us by showing how great our debt is in comparison to the much smaller debts of our brothers and sisters. The parable rhetorically asks, how can you, after having your enormous debt erased, how can you then turn an exact payment from your debtors? Instead, it teaches us that our response to repenting brothers and sisters should always be, even after the thousandth offense, I happily forgive you. How could I not forgive you since I have been forgiven so much more than this? This is the humility Jesus is pushing his disciple toward in his sermon on community life, and we have to humbly and soberly assess the weight of our own debt to God. If we misjudge it, if we cheapen it, if we think of it as insignificant, then we will judge our neighbor's debts far too severely. This kind of humility isn't natural to us. So when we are able to humble ourselves and we see our debt as God sees it, and then we turn and freely forgive our brothers and sisters' lesser debts, We show something. We show that we have actually been completely remade. This kind of humility isn't within us naturally. And when we express it, we prove that we have been transformed. We have been reborn into the family of God. There's actually new life in us so that we begin to take on the characteristics of our heavenly father. Okay, just like we look like our biological dads, some of us more than others, we actually begin to look like our heavenly father, because our character resembles his. You know, many years after hearing this parable, Peter would write to his brothers and sisters in Christ, reminding them that in Jesus, God made them and us partakers of his divine nature. Did you hear that right? You are partakers of God's divine nature. You aren't you don't have to be that proud, ugly, self-righteous person you were before because God has remade you into a holy person capable of this excessive generosity that he is. What a glory this is. But we reach this glory by first humbling ourselves like little children, by falling to our knees and pleading for God's mercy. And then God, in his excessive generosity, disproportionate to our debt, freely and happily forgives us. And not only does he forgive us, he then exalts us by remaking us into the image of his son so that we begin to display the greatness of his character to the world around us. This is how humility leads to greatness. But this parable also teaches us that forgiveness is costly. So if the wicked servant had forgiven as he had been forgiven, he would have absorbed the loss of three months worth of pay. But look at what erasing our debts cost God. Separation from his son, the humbling of Jesus, the spilling of his precious blood. Okay, we will never Spend more than God spent. We will never absorb a greater cost than God did. But we should not expect forgiveness to be cheap. It will cost you something. As a teenager, my dad had a few run ins with the law. So one night he was caught stealing from a general store. And the police chief, knowing my dad's history, really wanted that general store manager to press charges and put my dad in juvie. But the store owner refused, and he didn't say why, but he chose to absorb the cost of that theft, and he allowed my dad to go free. Well, years later, after my dad met Jesus and experienced the forgiveness of his sins, he actually ran into that store owner late one night at a truck stop. He introduced himself, and he asked, Why did you not press charges? And the store owner told him that he was a Christian who had also once been in trouble with the law. But since his sins had been forgiven, he wanted to extend that same generosity to my dad. So my dad was able to thank him and tell him that he had also met Jesus in the intervening years. And, you know, it's interesting because since that night, I've often seen my dad be very forgiving towards Uh, specifically troubled teenage boys but this is the power of forgiveness to transform it remakes a proud sinner into a humble and gracious child of God who is willing to absorb loss and to experience some hurt in order to see other people go free Third, this parable teaches us, and the, and the whole context, Matthew 18, teaches us that all sin is deadly. So in this preaching and in the parable, Jesus sobers us about the deadly consequences of sin. The disciples were focused on the externals, right? I mean, they were good law keepers, but they failed to see how their pride was grievously offensive to God. It isn't just idolatry and sexual sins, theft, violence, those kinds of things that fit us for the flames of hell. It's also pride and self-righteousness, ingratitude, and yes, mercilessness. All those things plunge humanity into eternal hellfire. So this parable teaches us that all sins are deadly. It is a precious picture of that reality. Fourth, this parable and this, the preaching from Matthew 18 teaches us that God will seek you out and restore you when you sin. And one of the ways he seeks you out and one of the ways he restores you is by shocking you with the truth about sin. It's by telling parables that rattle you a little bit. This parable is a warning it's not that we can lose our salvation. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's answering Peter's question within a sermon to his disciples, these men that he dearly loves, this men, these men that he will go to die for, these men that he will commission with building his church. This is not a threat to revoke their place in the kingdom, but it is a reminder of the deadliness of sins and what God has called them to so that they will eradicate it from their lives. And so in this parable, Jesus warns you like he warned his disciples. He's warning you to stir you up to godliness. He's spurring you on in this parable to greater love and greater good works. He is pushing you to glory. So open your ears to his words. Humble yourself and repent of your sins, all of them. This parable and this sermon teach us to repent of the way we've lived in God's world, just greedily devouring all of his gifts and provisions without even stopping to realize the giver or to thank him for his generosity. We have to repent of that. This teaching teaches us to repent of the ways we devalue our salvation and cheapen God's excessive and disproportionate mercy. It teaches us to repent of ignoring God's words and persisting in sinful and destructive habits. We're taught to repent of our own self-righteousness, the way we can kind of turn a blind eye to our own sins, coddling and excusing them, but then somehow in the same breath turn and harshly judge our neighbors for their sins. This parable would teach us to repent of our eye rolls and our condescending snickers or of the way we verbally lash out at our husband and children or roommates and co-workers. It teaches us to repent of other sins of the heart like greed and selfish ambition of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It teaches us to repent of the ways we can devalue one another of not showing honor to other people when it's due them, of withholding praise or encouragement when it is in our power to give it. We should repent of our apathy towards others for not listening, for sighing at people's neediness. Teaches us to repent of laziness and lack of self-discipline and pride and envy and hatred and bitterness, of holding grudges, of perversely taking pleasure in other people's failures for greedily distributing information and uncovering offenses that it would have been your glory to overlook. It teaches us to repent of accusing others before God. That's the devil's work. It teaches us to repent of despising people for their weaknesses, for manipulating conversations to make ourselves look better than we really are. This teaching implores us to repent of all these things and so much more. It is calling us to humble repentance. It's calling us to once again fall on our knees and plead for God's mercy. And there is so much mercy for the humble. We can again experience the excessive, disproportionate mercy of our king when we humble ourselves in this way and then we can experience his transforming power, remaking us into the humble children who eagerly extend that same excessive, disproportionate even, forgiveness to others. If we humble ourselves, he will exalt us, making us like Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are so great. So extravagant, so excessive, and disproportionate in your generosity to us. You have forgiven us our vast debt of sin. And we can't help but sense your convicting spirit in our lives for the ways that we have been miserly or stingy toward others. For the sins of the heart, the pride that we have sometimes coddled. Places where our character looks more like our previous father, like the devil, rather than you, our heavenly father. So we humble ourselves today. We are your little children, and we ask afresh for your mercy. Forgive us. Our sins, they are many, but your grace is so much more. And Father, as we break up into our small groups, I just pray that you would let this spirit of humility pervade the room and pray that you would... Allow the conversation to flow freely. I pray that your mercy would just um, allow people to feel the healing of confession as they admit weaknesses and request prayer. Pray that good counsel from your word would happen in these rooms today. Pray for the leaders. Help them to have wisdom, to draw people's hearts out. But mostly, we just want to see your great character magnified in our words and in our actions. In Jesus' name, amen.